Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Has been looking in the Bible when it talks about 20 years. Just kind of looked through it as I've been preparing for coming here, but also for us in 20 years. Uh, Jacob served Laban, his, his father-in-law, for 20 years. First seven years was uh, for his wife-to-be that he got tricked and he, and he was given the, f- the oldest daughter, Leah. And, uh, and then he had to serve another seven years for the for the, for the girl he really loved. But when the Bible describes it, it says the seven years that he waited for Rachel was, was, was like a few days. Seven years was like a few days. 20 years, maybe it's just like a week. Wow. If you go on and you look at Samson, and I, I kind of got a couple of pics on Instagram with Tony trying to be Samson. You know that Samson judged Israel for 20 years? It was 20 years. Sometimes we tell that story and think it was a few months, but it was 20 years. Solomon, he built the temple and his palace for 20 years. In fact, if you look at Solomon's life, the first 20 years were years where uh, he was endowed with wisdom. And the queen of Sheba came and, and, and saw him, and she was breathless at his wisdom. The first 20 years were magnificent. In the last 20 years of his life, it was coming of a disaster. 20 years. At 20, in Israel, you were able to be counted, kind of like you could become part of the community. They didn't count you before 20. You were just a child. But at 20, you could be counted. In fact, at 20, you could go to war. 20 was the age that you went to war. If you were a Levite, that was one of the tribes of the nation of Israel. If you were a Levite, you were set aside to serve the priests. So in this elaborate temple, in their worship to God, as they would bring sacrifices and and they would worship, the priests were set aside to do the work, but the Levites were the servants. The Levites were those that were set aside to serve. You could only serve when you got to 20. In fact, you were set aside for 30 years. You could serve between 20 and 50 years old. At 50, you had to retire. The numerologists tell us that the number 20 in the Bible stands for expectancy. It's almost like these 20 years have been preparation, and there's a great expectancy for the next 30. It's like for 20 years... God has been preparing you for the next 30. What's going to happen in these next few days? It's not long because as we look 30 years, we think, well, I may not make that 30 years because, yeah, I don't want to tell you how old I'll be. But yeah, okay. I will be 84. How old will you be, Tony? Yeah, a little bit younger than that. I think about 10 years younger than me, somewhere around there, right? 30 years looks so long, but I, I want to say that if we are around at 86 and I manage to come to Australia to your 50th, it'll seem like days, 
But when we look back, we're going to see all that God has expected to be fulfilled will be fulfilled. Come on. But you know, one of the, the favorite 20s in the Bible for me was, it's hidden in the book of Samuel. The prophet Samuel, he wrote this book and he was, it's a description of Israel's history. And there was a time in the history of Israel that things weren't really going that well. In fact, it was kind of a down moment in the history, and they were losing against their enemies, and the enemies were attacking them, and the enemies would bring along their gods that were carved out of wood and metal or whatever it may be, and the Israelites looked at it, and they thought, well, let's take our God, but they couldn't find their God because God was not visible. He is everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. But they went to take a representation of what they could find, and it was the ark of God's presence. It was where God dwelled. It was this golden box that was in the temple. And they went and they took this ark and they went into battle. And they lost the ark to the enemy. And the enemy took it. They said, we've got this God. Of course, they didn't understand it. But they took this box and they put it in front of their God. And the next morning they came and the God had fallen on his face. Broke his hands and head, and, and then there was disease that broke out, and tumors, and there was all sorts of sickness, and, and then the enemy didn't want it, so they gave it to their neighbors, and the neighbors gave it to, and eventually they said, let's just give it back. And so they sent it back on an ox cart, back to Israel. And when it came into their field, they were rejoicing, and about 70 people came running, and they wanted to see what was in the ark, and they opened up the lid, and 70 people died. And then they took the ark, and they, they went and put it in a, in a man's house. Now, I don't know about you, if you were kind of living in that day, and you've heard about the ark of God's presence and what it's done. It's just wrecked havoc in the enemies. Their gods have fallen. There's cancer and disease and there's havoc in the, in the enemy. And then they come back and 70 of your relatives die and then they want to put it in your house. How many of you are saying, sure, come in. But this is the description that it takes place, 1 Samuel 7, and it says, And the men of Kirath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark for the Lord. And from the day that the ark was lodged at Kirath-Jerim, a long time passed, 20 years. <laughs> A long time passed. It's interesting how the Bible describes it as a long time. It's just 20 years. When I read that, the Holy Spirit began to speak in my heart and capture me. And I, I began to dig and I, I, I went and found out what, does, what, what is the man, Abinadab, how, how would he be? What kind of a household would that be that would be willing to take the ark, the presence of God, into his house? I found out that Abinadab means the generous gift of the father. It means to be generous and willing. A willing, generous father. But the interesting thing is that they ordained. It says they consecrated. In another version it says ordained. They ordained his son, Eliezer, to look after the, the presence of God. And Eliezer, 
means, comes from two words, El, which is mighty God, Isa, which is helper, the mighty godly helper. And God spoke this into my heart and he said, where the fathers are willing and generous and the sons will say, God help us. He says, my presence will dwell for a long time. Do you know what? This is a house where the fathers are generous and willing. And I see the sons and daughters of the king. And they're just passionate. There is this dream in my heart. And about five years ago, God stirred this in my heart. And I've not left it. It's not left me. And I will not leave it. And I have this dream. I have a dream of a church that are filled with generous, willing fathers, open-handed, and the sons who are willing to say, God, help us. And we're the fathers and the sons, and I'm not just talking about men and, you know, I'm talking about the, the parents and the children in the house. It can be a time where it's a long time. And the presence of God dwells in the house. So I'm dreaming of. I know that for many there are the promises of God that are not fulfilled. I'm sure and I know that there are promises for this house that are not yet fulfilled. And there, in that, there is this expectancy. Even as, as Tony says, the better days are yet to come. Why is that? Because there are promises unfulfilled. And even for your life and for my life, there are promises unfulfilled. I uh, was reading through the book of Acts and God just stirred this verse and it's kind of the basis of where I want to just share this morning on a few things. It was in Acts chapter 7 verse 20 is the verse, but the context is Stephen. He was the first martyr in the church. And he gets to this place in time and uh, he's preaching and there are the men around that are wanting to kill him and they're breathing and they, they just want to pick up rocks and they're about to do it. So these men, were the, he was preaching to his future murderers in a couple of minutes. He didn't know that. But at this time, he starts to look at the history and he looks back and he starts to remind them of the history. And he gets to this point in place where he talks about Moses. Now, Moses was the deliverer leader. Moses was the type of Christ that God sent in to, to, uh, to Egypt to deliver his people. It's like Jesus comes as the redeemer, the deliverer one, and he's redeemed us out of the world. And so he's about to tell them about Moses. And when he's preaching, he says these words, at the time Moses was born, he was no ordinary child. And in that moment, I felt God say, Victory, you are no ordinary church. Come on. As Tony keeps telling you, you're no average church. You're no average church. In fact, you've gone way past average. As best as I could, I, I try to find out what the average church is in Australia. Do you know that the average size in the church, and I know statistics are not that good in that, but as best as I could find, they said the average church in Australia is between 60 and 70 people. Uh, you're way past average. 
You've gone past the ordinary. You are above ordinary. In fact, as Christ followers, we are no ordinary people. We are extraordinary people. We're called to be a church that is extraordinary. And that's what I love about victory. I was telling Tony as I'm sitting there, and uh, he was telling me about uh, someone that was saying to him that another church is, is just, they don't play in another league, they play in another game. And I said to him, and you guys, I feel like when I come here, I feel like, jeepers, you're not in another league, you're in another game. And, and we got to catch up. In fact, not catch up. i got to start playing another game. And that's what I love about victory is that you're no ordinary church. You're extraordinary. You're extraordinary. You're not just extraordinary because of, you know, the way you dress or the building that you're in and all of these things or the leaders you have. Those things are great. But I tell you, we are extraordinary because of the life of God in us. It's Jesus that makes the difference. It's Jesus at the center. So I want to share with you three things that I felt God just stir in me about becoming extraordinary. Extraordinary or extraordinary. Three actions. I know there's more, but there were just three that I want to encourage. Now, I, I feel a little, well, you're smart people. Uh, and I, I know this is not going to be, wow, Craig, I didn't know that. Woo, this is going to be, no, it's not going to be earth shattering. All I feel in God is that I want to pour some extra courage into you to make these next 30 years count. And so the three actions of extraordinary people, the three actions of extraordinary church, just three, there's more, but three that I want to share is that you need to dream big. You need to risk everything, and you need to create for the glory of God. When it comes to dreaming big, it's, it's not just having pizza dreams at night, you know, extra pizza, cheese, and you get, you know, weird dreams. I'm not talking about those dreams. I'm talking about vision of seeing things that you've never seen before. And I was here a couple of years ago. I told the story of my cataract eye. Remember, uh, I, I've had two cataracts in both my eyes. And what happens is uh, uh, my lens in, your, your lens in your eye goes uh, hard and milky and you can't see. And so what the surgeon does is he, he cuts your eye, sucks out the old one, and then he puts a new lens inside your eye. It's an amazing operation, the most done operation in all the world. But after having done that, the beginning of this year, I began to have some things that were like, you know, floaties, but bad ones. It was like huge, big things. And I, I, I kind of got a fright, so I ran off to the ophthalmologist, and, and, he, and he kind of looked in my eye. And, um, and so it was, you know, can you check? It's, it's this eye. And he kind of looked in there, and he said, listen, Craig, you're getting old. So, oh, that's not what I wanted to hear, Pierre. You know, it's not. A, so he said, but listen, I tell you what, uh, you know, you just got to get, got to make friends with that little floaty. It'll eventually go away. I thought, oh. He said, let me just say, he checks out, oh, he checks out, he checks out. Then on another machine and another machine and another machine. And then he, he kind of says, okay, Craig, I want to book you into uh, theater today for your right eye. I said, no, 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 it's the left eye, Pierre. He said, no, no, your retina is detaching in your right eye. 
So what happens is at the back of your eyeball, it was like coming off. And it had started to detach. And he said, if it detaches, it's disaster. So I'm kind of thinking, oh, well, what is it? So he says, no, I laser it back on again. <laughs> okay. So I'd been for some laser treatment before where there was a little couple of things and he just lasered. It was painless. It was beautiful. So I said, so Pierre, it's just like the last time. It's just painless. He said, no, 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 no. That was painless. This one is painful. <laughs> so it's kind of like, uh, do I go or don't I go, you know? Anyway, I, I, we went and, and I didn't realize how painful it really was going to be. And so he puts you in this machine, and he's got this green light, that's, and, he, and he's just saying, keep your eyes still and don't move. And then he starts, and the pain is sharp, and it's piercing, and it's at the back of your eye, and he's got this eye open, and this tears are rolling down this side, and he's saying, don't move. And I said, what do you mean, don't move? <laughs> and I'm thinking, do I just want to go blind, or do I want to see God, I don't want to go blind. I want to see what you see. And there are times where our retina begins to detach and you start to lose vision. And it's in that moment that we need the laser treatment of God's Word gets into the back of the eye. So he said, you got to hold for six seconds. I said, six seconds. He said, six seconds. You know how long six, six, six seconds are? It's 20 years. So now, I've got a tattoo. It's on the back of my eye. You can't see it, but I can. I'm joking. I'm joking. Now, you see, it's all about seeing what God sees. It's about those better days to come. Victory, would you see them as God sees them? But you see them as there is more than before. The reason that Tony says, and we all say there are better days ahead, that's just not to conjure up a, a kind of a positivity and a, come on, raw, raw, let's do it. It's because it's based in the very nature and character of God. It's based in the very foundation of the church. You see, when Jesus had given birth to the church and, and he had ascended to the Father and in that new Ecclesia, the called out ones. Peter and John, one day they're going down to the temple to pray and there's this lame man uh, next to the temple and they say, hey bud, uh, I've got no money, no dollars, but what we have, we'll give it to you. We've got the power of God and they lay hands on him and he's instantly healed. He gets up and he's running around and it turns the city upside down. Acts chapter three. Acts chapter four comes around and uh, the same authorities that arrested Jesus and crucified him come and arrest Peter and John. These same people. And they take them before the council and uh, they, they, they want to do the same thing that they did to Jesus. But they are captivated by how ordinary men were being so bold. It says there in Acts chapter 4, it says they, they, they saw they were ordinary men. But that was their perception because what they said was, but they had noted that they had been with Jesus. You see, Jesus, there's no ordinary man. This extraordinary God, this extraordinary man had spent some years with these men and the power of God was now in them and they were no ordinary men anymore. They didn't know what to do with them. They said, now you guys, you do not speak about Jesus. You don't use his name. 
These are the same men that killed Jesus. And Peter and John, standing before them, said, listen, uh, whatever. Now, do you have that expression here that's kind of like stick your finger up a nose? Does, you know what that means? Not. It's not an Australian. Okay. Well, what for us it means kind of like you defy the status quo. And they said, we will not listen to you. We will only listen to God. And, and they didn't know what to do with them. And so they let them go. These, the highest authority in Israel, they justified them. It's kind of like, whoo, now that's bold. And so they go from this council, Peter and John, and they go to a prayer meeting. Now this is no ordinary prayer meeting, because at the end of it, the building shook. Now this is, that's an extraordinary prayer meeting. And the interesting thing for me is what they prayed. Because when they get to this time in Acts 4, 29, it says, in the midst of their prayer, this is their prayer. It says, now consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Hang on. You've just been bold. You've just told the same men that killed Jesus, we're not going to listen to you. Why pray for more? Because there's more than before. And when you think you've reached the pinnacle of what you've done, God knows there's more than before. This is not a prosperity gospel. I'm not trying to say, you know, there's more money before. There is. Yes, there is. But I'm trying to say, can we get the very heart of God and this early church that said, even when we've reached the pinnacle of what we think we've done, there is more than before. The better days are ahead. Come on, we've got a dream. Big. You know, big dreams are bold. They're bold. A new boldness to see a vision fulfilled. Big dreams, they're very specific. They prayed, give us boldness. This is a time to be specific. I loved the conciseness of a big dream. It was just, Lord, make us bold. And what I love about victory's vision it's bold, it's big, and it's concise. We're helping people connect to God, the church, and their purpose. That's concise, that's big, it's bold, and the better days are ahead. Amen? The third action, second action that I want to share on this morning is that we got to risk. Risk everything. As I found in 20 years, I thought that I risked everything when I planted. In fact, before that, I started, I was in my own business. And I remember when I went out from employment to start my own business in those days. I mean, I started with 500 rand, which is uh, $50, okay? And I go back, I think, how did I ever do that? I must have been nuts. I risked everything for something. And I remember when we, we left and I had my own business and we were gonna plant and I gave my business away. I went to my neighbor and I said, you need some help. I'm not gonna sell my business. I'm gonna give it to you. And I gave it to him. People said, are you crazy? And I said, no, because what I know is for the next, I don't know how many years, I'm gonna need the supply of heaven. So I'm giving it away. I think back now, are you crazy, Craig? 
because we risked everything. And then as we go on and, and God has taken, I realized that to risk $50 in those days was nothing because the risk, as many have said, is faith is spelled R-I-S-K. And when we come to risk everything, he is worth everything. You know, in John chapter 6, I was reading recently through the book of John, and, and I get to John chapter 6. I don't know if you've found some difficult passages in the Bible. You know, you kind of think, wow. In John chapter 6, Jesus, having just fed 5,000 people, and, you know, he broke the bread and the fish, and he, and he fed them. And it wasn't long when they came again. And they, they're like, hey, come on, show us some more. Give us some other supernatural things. And he says, you guys are not here for the supernatural. You just want to get fed. So he launches into this. He's a master at taking the circumstance, putting it into a parable, and teaching them something. And so he gets to this place, and he says, I am the bread of life. Now, you've got to understand, the bread in that day was the main meal. It was like the, in Africa, the pup. We call it the pup or the milli meal, all right? It's the rice in China, the main meal. Don't know what's it in Australia. Meat pie. Okay, it was the meat pie in Australia, right? But Jesus stood up and he said, I'm the main meal. I'm not some hors d'oeuvre. I'm not some entree. I'm not some little, you know, add on the end. He says, I am the main meal. I'm the bread of life. And they look at him and they're kind of like, and then he goes on and he, he gets to this place where he says, unless you... Eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. You're not worthy to be my followers. Now that's kind of, kind of like, whoa. You know? I don't know if Jesus, no, I don't know. This is a difficult passage for me. Because I'm thinking, you know, Jesus, what were you meaning? What were you saying? Were you, and in fact, if you carry on reading in John 6, it, it gets to the place where it says, and many of his disciples left him. It was like, this, this was too difficult. Okay, time out. I'm out of here. Jesus, I, I can't do that. In fact, he turns to his disciples, the ones he's chosen, the 12. He says, uh, boys, are you going to go too? And they said, uh, where are we going to go? And I, I was struggling with this. And I said, Lord, and I began to dig down. And I, I went and found out. And I realized that what was happening was that Jesus, when he said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, it wasn't saying of the physical. He was using an idiom. And sometimes idioms make idiots of us. Because yeah. idioms don't go through translation. So if I had to say here, um, the old man kicked the bucket, what would I be saying? He died. If you've got green fingers, what am I saying? He's a good gardener. Now, if I went to Brazil, which is, speaks Portuguese, and I said the old man kicked the bucket, and they translated it, what would they be hearing? They would see an old man... kick the bucket. Doesn't go through translation because it's an idiom. And so this doesn't go through translation because we think that what Jesus is saying that we've actually got to eat, but what? That was an idiom in the day that said, unless you take, it, take all of me, you will have nothing of me. Unless you take all of me, unless you eat the main meal, you'll have nothing of me. In other words, if you are not prepared to risk everything, you will have nothing. 
And he was about to go and he was going to give his flesh and blood. He gave everything so that we could have everything. And God, you know, it's, it's, it's in that, it's this incredible sacrifice. When we stand and say, God, I'm going to risk everything so that I may get. You know what? Religion will give you the crumbs of rules. So if you do this, if you do that. And there are many people eating a few crumbs and they're satisfied with the crumbs and they think that they have got, the, that they've got salvation. But salvation is a relationship through which we give everything to gain everything. Surrender everything to gain everything. I, I love the fact that it, in that great gospel that came up on the screen uh, for Easter, for God so loved the world that he withheld his son because we were sinners. It doesn't say that, does it? It says because for God so loved us that he gave. He didn't withhold. And friends, as we look to be an extraordinary church and an extraordinary people, is that we would give everything so that we could gain everything. May we be a church that risks for our great king. And the last thing this morning then is just to create. It's more about innovation. It's more about being innovative than creating. But I, I believe that creation and creativity for us is about innovating. That which not is shall become because we have seen it and we believe it, risked everything, and so we see something that's not been. Someone said uh, one time that lack of resources Plus passion equals innovation. The times when I've been, and, and I'm sure you have had that at the same time, you say, we, we don't have. We lack resources. God, I don't have enough money, or I don't have this. And, and then yet a passion for what God wants brings us into a place where supernaturally we see innovation come around. Something which hasn't been. And I, I've loved over the years uh, as I've, it's maybe like it's, it's somehow that many times we've lacked. Now, it's not only lacking money. This week, this past week, I sat in the most incredible meeting. Now, some of you know I have a passion for coffee. And, uh, and so we were, I've been made friends and talk about coffee and, and I'm a bit of a coffee freak and all of that. But in it, I've made some friends, and, and what happened this week is I met a businessman by chance at a, at a, at a dinner, and the next day, he phones me, he says, I need to see you, and a couple of days later, he's sitting, we're sitting together, and he's opening a door that he says, they're part of a company, a large company, and they have had a passion for coffee, and they've wanted to create a whole coffee industry and a coffee thing. I mean, their plans are so big, they've got 25 million rand backing, and they've, they wanted to push the button, but they didn't have an expert. They didn't have anyone that knows about coffee, and so they pushed the pause. So they had lacking resources. They had all the money, but no skill. On the other side, my son has a friend who is, knows all about the coffee. He's been in Africa, has traveled. He knows about green beans. He knows about roasting. He's a roaster. He is a, a barista. He came fourth in the, in the national championships. He's, he knows coffee, and he's trying to start a business, and he has no money. He's got the skill, but no money. And I said to these businessmen, 
I got the guy. I went to this guy. I said, I got the money. And I pulled these two people together and I sat in the meeting and, and he says to me, where's the catch, Craig? He says, the only thing is, is I trust you, Craig. And, and, and these businessmen are saying they trust me. And I'm saying, whoo, put these two together, both lack resources, both, boom, innovation. I just use it as an example. There was this time in, the, in Israel's history, right between Old Testament and New Testament, there's a minor prophet. His name is, is Zechariah. Zechariah he had this chance of being lifted into heaven, and he got a peak of the future. And he wrote it down. I mean, he, he said something, he saw some incredible things. But this one little picture in Zechariah chapter 3 is when he gets into heaven and he sees a council. He sees the high priest Joshua with his men that are around him. And this is how God describes this council, this Joshua the high priest. He says, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men, symbolic of things to come. I wanna say, listen, Elders of victory and the church seated amongst us. You are symbolic of things to come. You are signposts. You can look at each other and say, we're going to become like each other. You look at the elders and I'm saying, elders, you are the signposts of the future. You've got to rush into the future, see it, risk everything, and allow even when there is nothing, God to create something so that we as others that are looking at you can say, let us become like them. And I'm saying, victory, do not stop. Do not slow down. Continue to be symbolic of things to come. There are a lot of churches that are symbolic of what's being done. A lot of people looking around and say, whoa, I want to be like that. And Urban Life say, whoa, I want to be like victory. I'm saying, victory, do not do what is symbolic of things done. Be a people that are symbolic of things to come. You know, this is really, it's, a, it's just a mirror and a reflection of an extraordinary God. It's an amazing God that before the foundations of this earth dreamed a massive, bold dream of salvation. Simple, bold, concise, that all men may be saved. A God that risked everything, came down to the sin-sick world and allowed this world to nail him to a cross but in and through that, the devil didn't know what he was doing. The Bible says if he did, he wouldn't have done it. And in it, out of the ashes, rose the Son of God and salvation for all. And what he gave, he's given the church. And there's nothing like the church. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au.